Recording is now live. Welcome back. And Renee Lucia has a question. Hello? Oh. Hello. <laughs> okay, I'm glad we had this time because a question uh, came to my mind as you were preaching this morning. I always thought that Jesus cleansed the temple once, and that was two different people's point of view of it. But you mentioned that it was two different. Yeah, no, it has to be twice. Go to John 2. So we know this is the Passion Week. We know this is the triumphal entry. So Luke's placement is clear, unmistakable. John's is as well. Um, so we got John 2. So the, the time frame, and John actually um, keeps a relatively tight chronology, starting from the day when John the Baptist points out Jesus to the wedding at Cana, we get a week. Um, so verse 19 is when the tracking of chapter 1 starts. When the, This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests, Levites from Jerusalem, to ask him, who are you? And he says, behold, the one comes after me. 29 the next day, 35 the next day, 43 the next day, um, 2-1 on the third day. I'm just trying to track. This is right from Jesus' return from his baptism. And then, um, verse 12, the tight chronology breaks. After this, he went down uh, after the wedding at Cana with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Right? The Passover of the Jews was at hand. Jesus went up to the temple to Jerusalem. And that's when he cleanses the temple. So this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Um, and it's before, so the first, we're told, John doesn't number all of Jesus' miracles, but he numbers the first two. So look at 2.11. He turned the, uh, the water into grape juice. Sorry, I mean wine. And uh, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. His disciples believed him. Then he cleanses the temple, right? Then he has the encounter with Nicodemus. Then he goes to um, the Samaritan village. And then when he comes back, um, in chapter 4, we get his second sign. Um, verse 454. He heals the official's son from a distance. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he'd come from Judea to Galilee. So in between Jesus' first miracle and Jesus' second miracle... John puts the cleansing of the temple. So uh, I think the best understanding is Jesus at the beginning and Jesus at the end of his ministry cleansed the temple. And Zeb Carpenter, three weeks ago, interestingly pointed out, an interesting parallel, that when a priest was called in to deal with a house that had mold or leprosy, they'd inspect it once and give it a thorough scrubbing. And then if it happened a second time, they'd inspect it, give it a thorough scrubbing. And if it was still there, it would tear the house down. Interestingly, Jesus twice inspects, cleanses the temple, and then predicts its destruction. So, yeah, but that's that's the basis of concluding Jesus did it twice. Um, you. Yeah, oh, you're welcome. Jeremy Sweets, you were talking this morning about um, Jesus's miracles, proving and giving evidences of where his power came from, his authority. We had talked 
it probably was a year ago or more about how um, the real power from Jesus is from his words and his ministry, and that the miracles were essentially to draw the crowd. Well, they're signs. They're, they, they grab attention, right? They, they, they did a couple of things. I think you might be thinking more in, in Acts even. But yeah, Jesus, Jesus and the disciples do signs. So the, the signs do a couple of things. They generate crowds. They grab attention. They spread reports quickly. And for those who have eyes to see, they validate and verify. So, so when John the Baptist is arrested in Luke 7, and he sends people to Jesus to uh, question, hey, are you the Messiah? We should... Hey, look what I'm doing. I'm healing the blind and the lame. It's exactly what Isaiah talked about. Go back and tell John. So they verify who he is, and certainly they do grab a crowd and draw attention. Um, that's even seen more clearly in the book of Acts. I think in Acts 2, when the disciples speak in other languages, what people oftentimes miss is that wasn't to help them evangelize these people in all these different languages. No, I mean, good guys miss this. It drew a crowd. And then one man with one language, as best as we can tell Greek, Peter, stood up, and in one message, 3,000 people were converted because all the Scythians and all of the Galatians and all the people there were bilingual. They spoke the lingua franca, which was Greek. So the, the disciples speaking in other languages at the top of the rooftop gathered the crowd, which then set the stage for Peter to stand up and in one language to that crowd preach the gospel. So they were not given the gift of languages so they could preach the gospel to people. They were given the gift of languages as a sign to, to draw the crowd to get people's attention. So, yes, it, they, signs can function in two ways. Go to, go to Hebrews chapter 2, the author of Hebrews. And, and this is also, and this is a supposition or a guess, but this may explain why God in his wisdom doesn't um, give as many miracles and signs in our day as he once did. Because, look, look at the argument of Hebrews, and that's just my best guess, so I wouldn't put too much on that. But given the reason we're told for why these miracles exist, one might conclude that that function is largely past. So in Hebrews chapter 2, we'll just pick up in verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So there the author of Hebrews points to the, the witnessing, the testifying, the confirming nature of those miracles. Um, and, and you could also add, it is act of love. I mean, Jesus had compassion on the people. And I'm not to say that the miracles were not acts of compassion and kindness. But Jesus did not eradicate disease on the planet of the earth. And Jesus was willing to just simply tell the man on the mat, your sins are forgiven. So the primary function of Jesus' miracles is to confirm his identity and to grab attention, I believe. And I think that seems to be the same thing for the apostles, to confirm their testimony and their word, that they have the right. I mean, you think about the apostles. If you're a Jew and you live in Israel and you haven't heard what took place in Jerusalem, and these guys show up, a ragtag bunch of fishermen, an ex 
tax collector. And they're basically telling you, hey, guess what? I know all that stuff you weren't supposed to eat. You can eat it now. God sent his Messiah. The, the question, the honest question, we didn't see it this morning as an honest question. But the honest question, if this is true, how wonderful, how can you validate, how can you verify the truthfulness of your message? You're asking us to set aside the Mosaic law. Well, God granted them miracles and powers to authenticate and validate that message so that when it was legitimately asked, unlike this morning, people, okay. No, I mean, we could say, they could say what Nicodemus said. No one can do the works you do unless God is with them. So is that- It just seems like the your reaction to the miracles and the signs depends on what is already going on in your heart. Yes. If, if, you're, if you're saying, hey, this guy seems like He's, he's preaching truth, he's saying things that are right, and then he does signs and wonders, and you think, oh, yeah, that verifies what I was thinking, whereas if you were just random guy in the street and you saw the signs and wonders, it'd make you go, hey, what's going on over there? No, no, no exactly, and they can just attribute it to Satan if they need to. I don't believe seeing a miracle or a sign changed anybody's heart. I mean, as we sang this morning, I cannot make my soul to live Witnessing a miracle cannot make my soul to live. Only the grace of God can do that. And Jesus, earlier in Luke, the story of the rich man and, and Lazarus, I mean, Lazarus and the rich man and Father Abraham and the discussion the rich man has with Abraham, send Lazarus back from the dead. They will believe. If they don't believe the prophets, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if someone comes back from the dead. That's a bold statement on biblical authority. I mean, because we're tempted to think if we could just get Chuck Norris or we could just get, you know, if, if this p- political person could become a Christian or if this celebrity, we could, like, there is nothing more powerful for the conversion of souls than God's word. Period. Full stop. End of sentence. So, yeah. Other questions? Dan, Daniel's got one. Oh, Greg. Okay, Daniel's on. Da- oh no, they're, they're giving over to Daniel. Well, okay. in the in the interlude, I was just okay. going to encourage anybody who's never gone to T4G to consider it. It's just a, a powerful time and a, a a great way to meet some of the real leaders of the Christian community today. Uh, get a Put a face be, behind uh, voices, oftentimes, and understand, or just have a better feeling of people. And also, I wanted to announce my book sale that uh, I have coming up here. <laughs> Greg's, Greg's going to have some books for sale. You got two sets, right? Yes. So he's got an extra set right there. Yeah. Pastor Daniel, do you have any? Um were you thinking of a particular text when you said that signs are to draw a crowd? Couldn't think of a passage off the top of my head. Primarily just Acts 2, because the people were speaking in tongues, I mean in languages, the, a great crowd gathered, and just what we see, the report of Jesus spreading like wildfire through the gospel. So it's more deductive than anything. It, it, it appears to be what speeds the message along so quickly. Um, but would, would you say that's a necessary element for any sign? What do you mean? Well, Jesus does private miracles, and then yes. he gives specific instruction not to tell anyone. Right. So in some sense, I'd say signs are not to draw a crowd. Right. 
Now they happen to draw a crowd on, on multiple occasions they do, but I had never thought of that as a uh, necessary element of science. No, no, and, and, and admittedly we're dealing with broad brushstrokes. There are individual miracles that appear to simply be acts of compassion and no one gets told about it and they aren't functioning in any way like what I've said. I'm trying to speak generally about Jesus comes and for three years does a bunch of miracles and signs. It assures the word gets out and it validates who he is. I'm just, the, the word getting out, although Luke, I think, does point out how quickly the word spread, the testimony about him spread, and surely the miracles are fueling that. But primarily, I'd say, first and foremost, they function as a vindication of who he is. But not in every instance, right? I mean, not, certainly not in each and every instance. Um, so, no, fair enough. Fair enough. Pastor Daniel keeps you honest. Did you say all the signs? Okay. What? You doing the no thing? Oh, dear. I'll stop doing the no thing. Someone will talk and go, no, 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 yes. Yes. Okay. Or Greg Sweet's favorite, the yeah, no. Okay. Oh, Carol's got a question. I was just going to um, comment on how practical you made that use of words, and you gave, uh, I really like it when you give yourself as an example that relates to all of us, and uh, <laughs> trying, to, trying to answer a question or whatever to present ourselves in the best light, you know. And uh, I really received uh, conviction from the Holy Spirit and, and by proxy sitting next to me. And uh, <laughs> Are you paying attention, Carol? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she actually looked at me and smiled and said, that's you. And I, and, and I, actually, I actually gave her kind of a dirty look, but it's a, it, is, it is totally so, so true. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of a people pleaser anyway, and if I can, you know, say, you know, I think what we do a lot of times, we pick out the things that are true, because we don't want to tell a lie, but we don't tell all the story, and, uh, boy, that's, that was really, that was a good example. Yeah, the, very the, applicable. The challenge of being a truth teller is more than simply not lying. Really, my goal needs to be within the level of specificity that I'm trying to reach. So certainly, if you ask me, how am I doing today? I might determine Carol's looking for a pretty broad answer. I mean, I, I'm not required to say, well, when I got up, I had some indigestion. Then I, I mean, I can, right? So there's a sense in which the level of your answer, the accuracy is going to be based upon the level of accuracy you want to give. But it's more than simply don't say a lie. I want Carol to have an accurate picture. The, the picture that my words make in his mind, I want Carol to come to some his mind to, to link with what is true to what is, so that what Carol thinks of Jeremy's morning, in some sense, is, is accurate. So you can not lie and deceive people all over the place. I mean, if you've got kids, you know how this one works. Um, did you make this mess? Well, Zadok was in the basement, and he was playing with some toys, and he got the leg. But, okay, stop. You become, you learn how to interrogate your kids quickly. Forget what Zadok did. Did you have any part and parcel in this? Is there any part of this mess you made? Yes. <laughs> well, the first answer wasn't a lie, but it was a deception. Right? Are you, were you trying to deceive me? 
yeah, so it's, it's not enough to simply say I didn't lie. Um, it's, it's our speech to each other, um, especially within the body. I mean, Daniel's going to push the sub-caveat, isn't he? That God at times says things in ways to hide things from people. But certainly within the body, speaking to ourselves, we aren't doing that. Um, and certainly, as we speak the truth and love to each other, my goal is, to whatever degree of accuracy I'm trying to speak, you get a right understanding. And so it's never nearly enough to say, well, I technically didn't lie. It, that's, that's just, throw that out, that's, that's corrupt. And so back to my responsibility as a creature is to say what is and to say it in a way that is fitting and appropriate and, and gracious. And that's really it. And once I start becoming the master of words, they serve me. They get my, That's flattery, right? And a flatterer is someone who thinks this way and says, um, what would I need to say to please them so that I can get what I want from them? And again, you're back to this utilitarian approach to words. I will flatter you and get what I want from you, right? So it, it gets back to, are we the servant of words or are we the master of words? And I think biblically we're the servant. We ought to be the servant of words. Um, so, Kathy. Just so you know, I do it too. I like, I got this. How much did that cost? I got it on sale. <laughs> <laughs> Usually he stops there and he doesn't ask anymore. But I, I just want to thank you, too, for that message because, um, you know, I don't know if anybody else sees this, but I'm just seeing how it is getting harder and harder to just believe what people say. I told the kids downstairs, this is so good because, you know, at least we have a church that preaches the word and tells us what to do, what God expects from us, and... We're trying to do it. We're all trying to do it. We're all in this community together. We're trying to do what God wants us to do. And we have a Bible teachers that tell us, you know, that don't mince any words. And um, even, you know, just, just even in my workplace and, you know, just all over the place, parents that I deal with, um, none par- no parents here. <laughs> but, you know, it's just those, those funny things that, you know, you're just not, you become uncomfortable with them. And I right. hope we always stay uncomfortable with them. Yeah. And, and let, me, let me add one further content comment. Normally, I don't like taking shots at people out there. And I did that for a little bit, some of the more liberal Christian approach. That was done intentionally because I knew I'd come back around to trying to get us. But the emperor really does have no clothes. And really, this is the most prominent attack at the scripture and truth today is the we don't know because we can't know because I can tell you what this community and this community and this background and Anglicans think, but the question of what does it mean is more and more often not the question being discussed. And then the charge of arrogance when we say, show me if I'm wrong, but pretty sure this is what it says. You know, is called arrogance, and we don't want to be arrogant, and certainly you can be arrogant. I mean, the tension we have needs to be, if you see the Bible teaching something, you're not being humble if you pretend you don't. You're being ungrateful. If God's Spirit shows you truth in his word, and you pretend in some mock humility that you haven't seen it, you're just being disloyal and ungrateful. What is appropriate is, I see this clearly, 
I believe it's clear, and hopefully you've checked it with your community. I mean, this is where the sort of postmodern side of things, there is some validity to. Like, we have a community to check our readings off of to make sure Daniel's seeing what I'm seeing and Greg's seeing what I'm seeing and some other commentators are seeing what I'm seeing. And certainly I need to be open to correction. But if I believe I see it, to speak as though I don't is just to lie. You know what I mean? I mean, you, I'll, talk, I'll sometimes press people, oh, you don't want to be overly dogmatic, that's your reading. Okay, deity of Jesus, is that just your reading? Resurrection, that's just your reading? Or do you want to get dogmatic on that point? You know, so it, what it really comes down to in practice, and this is part of why it's so dishonest and deceptive, is the things that I care about, those are certain. Most of us, there's what most people in the academy do. My specific domain, I'm a modernist. There's true and false. There's accurate and inaccurate. There's good research, there's bad research. And the other things, well, that's all vague. You know, and, and who, can, who can say? But, but we can't function this way. There's a, if you look it up online, I might post it. Al Mohler has this wonderful story. Al Mohler is the uh, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And he is a friend and a brother. And in, in him becoming, how long ago did he become president? Like 20 years ago? It was a really unusual thing. Normally, conservative institutions go liberal. The reverse doesn't usually happen. And Southern Seminary had gone very liberal. And the conservative element in the Southern Baptist Convention got control just long enough to get Al the presidency. And he shows up to the convocation chapel, and he was saying that uh, one of the things that really helped Southern was they had a very, very, very accurate, detailed, and precise statement of faith that all the professors had to sign. And there's some Latin phrase for without hesitation. They had to sign. And what had happened is, over time, the literary department of Southern had simply allowed people to read and to view the meaning of that statement more and more loosely. So you still had every professor signing it. And so Al Mohler shows up to the convocation chapel and announces he's going to start holding professors to it. And he expects there'll be some turnover. <laughs> In reality, 90% of the faculty turns over in the next three years at Southern. Yeah. So anyway, he, he tells the story, and I'll put this on, it's fantastic his telling, but I, I want to point out the hypocrisy that even the people who, who the emperor has no clothes, these people who say, oh, words can be, so he goes back to his office, tells the secretary, just wait, they're coming. And sure enough, the, uh, the, the literary department, at the, the English department at Southern shows up, and they barge in, and you can't tell us what this statement of faith means. It means what we want it to mean. Jesus has risen in my heart. That's what it means to me. And you, you this won't stand. You know. And he sat there and he said, I, he goes, I know this is one of those life-defining moments. You know, everything hangs in the, the balance. And he goes, I look at them and I said, I don't know what to tell you, but you're fired. <laughs> and all of a sudden they came back. Oh, but we have contracts and we have tenure. Oh, oh, your contract means what I want it to mean. You see, they're, all of a sudden, they're not post-structural lingual theorists when it comes to their contract. And that's the point. People can come up with plausible ways to say, we don't know what it means. And they can do it in very, very clever, sophisticated ways that sound very wise and sound very humble. Nobody lives that way. That the simple irony that massive volumes of books are written to explain why meaning isn't in language. 
is the, the self-contradiction right there is, I mean, is, is, is huge, you know? None of these authors would be pleased if a reviewer blatantly misunderstood their argument and misrepresented them, right? They wouldn't say, oh, that's, that's interesting that that's what he got out of me. They'd get mad. And they'd, you know, D.A. Carson tells a story of this as well about how he was teaching a class and a student from a visiting seminary got up and was telling him that he was just reading his white background into Paul and he was reading his Western hegemonic. I mean, you dress it up with clever words. So you're just reading your cis male hegemonic Western um, reading into the text. So he started intentionally misinterpreting her. And he goes, oh, that's a powerful argument for authorial intention and the meaning of language. That's not what I'm saying, she said. And she said it again. And he said, oh, this is fantastic. Class, pay attention. She's making a powerful argument for authorial intention and the real meaning of words. This, this exchange went three or four times, so finally she got mad and like, started swearing. At what point he said, you're angry because you notice the, the break between what you mean to say and how I'm reading you. I just wish he'd afford the same courtesy to Paul. You see, no one can live this way. No one who speaks lives this way. It, it, it's nonsense. Yet, it gets dressed up in the academy, and all sorts of Christians get really confused and really scared because, well, we don't want to be arrogant. And so that part of the reason why I'm now and then highlighting this is don't, don't be intimidated. Now, don't be a jerk and be arrogant. <laughs> that, that doesn't mean go be arrogant, but this, this, is, this stuff is silly, and it, it's easily... And quickly refutable because what are the people going to have to do? They're going to have to use words to correct you, aren't they? They're going to have to use words and speech to tell you why you're wrong for thinking words and speech mean things. And they're to expect you to understand them rightly. Right? That makes sense? So that's, that's probably, at least in the academy and the higher level and in the, in, in the, uh, in the colleges and at the more uh, sophisticated level, this is the biggest challenge coming against the Bible. It's not inerrancy is passe. If we can't know what it means, it means nothing, right? And that's, that is absolutely where the attack is right now. So that's part of the reason why I spent some time on that, even though I do want to eventually come back around to us. Jim, get a microphone for Jim. Oh, we got one over here. Oh, then Abner has a question? Should I go first? Or? Oh, great. Okay. Okay, Greg. Were you going to ask something about the current topic? I wanted to probe what's at the heart of this, and my deduction, very possibly wrong, is the words we use are reflective of a false premise of who we think we are ourselves, right. as well as m probably more importantly, as those around us, starting with our spouse and the body, how we want to be perceived by them. Yeah, we, we want to do what we want and not be constrained by anything. I don't want to be told what to do. And I don't even want to be held accountable to reality. I want to be able to say what I want to say, what helps me out, what gets me what I want, independent of whether it's true. I don't want any constraints. I want freedom, absolute, total freedom to do as I please. And we come up with really, I mean, I, the desire for autonomy, which is the two Greek words, autos, nomos, self-rule, self-law. 
That's at the heart of the fall. You don't have to listen to God. You can be like God. And that's at the heart of all of this. As, w- as well as we, wanna th- we don't want to, I, I don't want to think of myself as a depraved person. I don't want to be right. perceived as a sick, twisted, depraved person. Right. So I think that salts my words for sure. Mm. Okay, hold on. Greg, you're after Greg. We got two Gregs, then we're close. Greg, you're Oh, he's he's gotten an addendum to that. So okay. So Rolak, you're bringing us home. Okay. Well, I just find the the notion that we can't understand scripture just lacks plausible causality. We 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 have a God that's that we all agree is omnipotent. And he's trying to convey his, his view to us. And yet we say it's too confusing. And the, it, surprisingly, this, this, the more education you get, the dumber you seem to be. No, you've got to be pretty smart to make some of those arguments, to be that dumb. But at the same time, you're doing that, you, have to be, you, you are saying God isn't wise enough to have conveyed his mind to me. And I don't know what that says about me, then, if I take that point of view. Right. Uh, but it's just, it's laughable, uh, and it, it, it indicates, I think it strongly, as you say, indicates the heart of man yeah. who doesn't want to understand it. Well, that, and that's why I think it's so critical. If you go back to four or five years ago, I did a series on biblical inerrancy, and the whole first message was the talking God. Because what I'll hear from my more liberal friends is um, words couldn't possibly, finite human words couldn't possibly express the divine. What's their assumption? That language is human. It's not. The first person to speak human words was God blessing the man and the woman in the garden. The first speaker of human language is God. God is a talking God. And if you put its origin and source at him instead of man, then all of this nonsense about words are frail and weak and can't do the you just fly out the window. The talking God talks, and when he talks, he can be understood. Yes? I mean, that, that's, you got to start there. Greg, and then we're done. Sorry, I, I didn't think we'd have enough time, so I'll open up the text again. I was going to say, could you kind of reiterate what the intention of the Sanhedrin was in asking the question? What, what were they expecting of Jesus when they said, tell us, by what authority do you do these things, or who is it that gave you this oh, authority? Sure. I think they're looking for what he says in 2269. I'm the to son catch of God. Him? I'm, no, just, I'm the son of God. I'm the Messiah. Because when he says that, they're like, we got him. What more proof do we need? Blasphemy. Kill him. I mean, that's what they're hoping to get him to say, which is why he's been very subtle and not overt at making his messianic claims. He'll do it to individuals like the Samaritan woman, but he likes the title Son of Man a lot because it's, nice, it's a nice subtle title because there's Ezekiel, Son of Man, and there's Daniel, Son of Man. <laughs> but when they understand in Matthew that all this time he's been saying Son of Man, he means Daniel, like they rip their clothes and freak out. Like, what? So they're just looking for him to say clearly who he is so they can kill him. And he will, and it will be the reason they kill him. Uh, you want to add anything to that, Daniel? No? 
Okay. That's, I think that's all they're trying to get him to do, is just clearly say you're the Messiah. Clearly say it. Say it clear as day. Say you're the Son of God. Clear as day. In John 5, it's the same thing. That's why they're seeking all the more to kill him, because he was making God his father, making himself an equal with God. Those are the claims that get Jesus killed. And that's at least the, the, the legal basis that they would say. That's what they're citing him with, is blasphemy. I mean, they, they're killing him because he's exposing their sin, and they don't like that. But the reason they give for killing him is blasphemy. That the claims to godhood, and the claims to divinity and messiahship. So that's what they're trying to do. And he, well, let me ask you a question first. Yeah. Do you see any, um, is it legitimate for us to do that at all? Or only, like, you know, no, if someone's coming no, no, to us. No, I do this all the time. Someone wants to argue about dinosaurs with me, you know. There's some great books and resources. You guys went to, uh, to, to, to the Creation Museum. But usually what I'll ask somebody is, let me ask you, I mean, what I'm dealing with an unbeliever. If I were to answer this, and there's books, we could study this, but if I were to answer this, is this the thing that's keeping you from bowing the knee to Christ? Like, if I could give you a satisfactory answer, you're, you, you would then repent and, and call upon the Lord. I've never heard someone say yes to that. Okay, then we don't need to talk about that. It's not an honest question. It's kind of like what I was getting at earlier. What about the Amalekites? Like, <laughs> if, if, if you're not really interested in truth, if God doesn't answer such people, I don't feel terribly compelled to either. So once you figure out someone's not interested in truth, I think now you're getting more towards, like, don't throw your pearls before swine than anything. Now, don't quickly judge someone's heart, but once someone evidences they aren't interested in truth, I don't know if there's a whole lot more reason to talk to them. Hey, Daniel has a mic. Do you want to say something? Yeah, uh, just came to my mind the, the irony that the same people arguing with Jesus here in John come before Pilate and say, do not say Jesus, the king of the Jews. Say he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Wow, what precision they now have. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, and that's what you see with these people. They, they can be precise when they want to be, and they can obfuscate, confuse, when they want to. Um, okay, our time is up. Thank you very much. I will, God bless you all, and God willing, see you next week. <laughs>